What's up, bootlickers? I haven't seen y'all since the camp out. I got something to say, right? Anarchy is and always has been the best way and the only morally sensible way to run the world. Cool. It's not just cool. It's the intersection of life and politics, activism and action. There's only one way to get power. Organize all the workers together. One big union. And the war the IWW wants you to get into is class war. War against the capitalists. Come on, it's not criminal to be an individual. It's not criminal to be an individual. How could you go to a riot without me? You were supposed to be on a riot, buddy. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space! I was a victim too. At least my wife was. She had friends who were socialists. Oh my god. Welcome to the Three Left Show. Let's go. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Three Left Show. Let me get the notes. Program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed. And I don't mean to an institution. I mean committed to the cause. Promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a community-run economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself, the meeting point of a socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags, those three flags of the three lefts. The call is open, channel is open. Uh, Michael, homegrown, are you there? Yes, I'm here now. Sorry. Yes, coming in clear. Let me raise you up a little bit more. Here you go. All For right. One second. All right. right. Quick. Uh, he's Skyping in. Well, not yeah, Skyping in. This is via Discord. He's Discording in, I guess. Uh, what's the verb for that? Uh, he's uh, d- d- live streaming on Twitch via Homegrown Hangout. So if you want uh, to uh, live stream that way that with a little bit of video, at least his video, uh, it's not going to get video from me because we want to keep the connection, the broadband, you know, without overloading it, of course. We're going to cover COVID uh, dystopia today. The dystopian imperative, that's what I called it. Yeah, so there, there are some other topics. Obviously, there's a lot more in the bank. Uh, leftist strategy, uh, what to do for the year. Uh, it's still it's February. We, we basically took a month break. Um, I played some old episodes. Just to, But I, I was actually driving myself nuts. Like, without the, the rhythm of doing the show, I actually got, like, kind of a little epileptic. Like, what am I doing with my life? I don't have any direction. I'm, you know, I'm lost. Um, obviously, I how you feel mm-hmm. we got to have our projects we have to have our distractions from death yep. uh from from mortality uh let's see let's move on. oh anyway let's let's actually do some pleasantries michael how are you doing i am doing i'm doing fine i got a rejection letter for a job this morning so um, it's Lucky a little, you, a rejection letter. Ooh, hoity-toity, a rejection letter. Sorry, I'm channeling the uh, Eric Idle in the Life of Brian. You know, it's like, oh, you got spit on? Oh, aren't you the favorite? But if I'm going to be completely honest, I really, really wanted to and would still like to work at this place. I applied to work 
of with Democracy at Work, the mm. organization that was founded by Richard Wolf. Right. And I've just binge watching every video I can of him talking and just listening to it. Yeah, it's certainly a good education on co-op economy and, and why um, it's a good strategy. They yeah. sent me an email. It said, um, they said, we've got like a lot of applicants, but we, mm-hmm. we appreciate you uh, taking the time to apply, but we're going ahead with other people. But they were, it was nice to like at least hear from them. Like so many of these brutal capitalist dystopian organizations you apply for them and you never hear anything like nothing it's just mm-hmm. an abyss it's 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 and, opaque no no transparency no democracy mm-hmm. um it's interesting that like they don't suggest or maybe they need to hire someone to organize or coordinate local chapters of democracy at work you know co-op interest mm-hmm. groups um, which is still in the liberal activism mode, but it's at least it's like, uh, let's see, we covered up in Manitoba, Canada, that there is like policy on municipal level of starting like co-op funds and stuff like that, or making, changing the laws to make it easier to form and operate co-ops, uh, maybe tax breaks for co-ops since they do provide so many or other like services. Refusal that if, business owners want to sell the company they first have to offer to sell it to their employees yes laws like that um which we kind of need across the board as far as property and stuff like here in new york we have something on um, the table um which is uh the the housing advocates uh, push for which is to if a landlord goes bankrupt it uh makes that the tenants and whatever like formation they create can create they get the first dibs on buying it out because they're the tenants that are living there. They have the right to buy it out mm-hmm. before anyone else. That way a bank doesn't scoop it up and then evict all of them, which is what happens down in Manhattan uh, exactly. a lot. So there's stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, there's, and so there's so much like to kind of fight for and especially like put on the platform. And that's why having a party that or an organization that can do all of these things, push for the co-op law, push for all this stuff. You know, I, I like the... But uh, on the on the topic of uh, dystopian capitalism or brutal capitalism, so yes. I'm gonna I got a piece from Forbes. It's from May of last year. So this is like from the pandemic is starting, the um, bodings of things to come, and so just a reminder of just like where we have been, and now what to to you know kind of put in context what we are living in right now. Uh, the title is some 42% of jobs lost in the pandemic are gone for good. We already know this in our own lives. Uh, but uh, here's a here's a kind of quick reminder review. Only some of the roughly 36 million jobs lost since the beginning of the lockdowns designed to protect hospitals from surging cases of COVID-19. Yeah, that's the only thing, not protect lives, right? Um, let's just ignore the um, not rant about the Forbes writing style. Or we can get to that maybe at the end. Not coming back. To a V-shaped or U-shaped recovery, the University of Chicago estimates that 42% of the recent layoffs will result in permanent job losses. Quoting them, we find three new hires for every 10 layoffs caused by the shock, an estimate that 42% of recent layoffs will result in permanent job loss, writes Jose Maria Barrero, Nick Bloom, and Stephen Davis. From the Becker-Friedman 
Institute in the University of Chicago of a working paper titled COVID-19 as a Reallocation Shock. Oh, who is it relocate to? Hmm? Most of those workers are now surviving on a record level of unemployment insurance. That means that some workers, including part-timers, are actually making much more from unemployment than if they were collecting a paycheck. But that stimulus is not permanent unless the Democrats, and here's their framing, get away with their universal basic income policy to give people around 2000 a month, a nice subsidy to corporate payroll. It's not just slimy. Uh, new initial claims came in at uh, 3 million, that's claims, unemployment claims, on Thursday, lower, and this is May last year, lower than 3 million plus in previous weeks, but not much less. Jobless claims also beat consensus estimates. Barclays expected 2.5 million. It's worse than it looks, says Michael Reynolds, an investment strategist. So basically, as most Forbes stories are, they're gears towards the investors, the people trading the stonks. Investors have been betting on a quick recovery once states lift their quarantine orders. But betting on when that will be becoming increasingly difficult. Isn't 2020 vision wonderful? Hindsight. Mm -hmm. Quoting, there's a reasonable way to handicap this. If we were in a recession and you were asking me how long would it take to come out, I, would han I could handicap that pretty well just by looking back at history. I can't do that with this, says Crit Thomas, global market strategist for Touchstone in Ohio. If we are operating on a much higher degree of uncertainty than we've ever had before, why is the market acting as healthy as it appears to be? Well, maybe it's the trillions of dollars being pumped into it. It's only favoring industries that are benefiting from this. If you look three to five years out and try to pick up stocks that are cheap, it might be okay. Then again, I might end up buying something for the value of it and end up buying companies that are not going to survive this. Investors are convinced that as a result of the job-crushing pandemic, people are likely want to build up precautionary savings going forward, spending less. Business will want to ensure sufficient liquidity buffers. Like they've never done that before. So, yeah, then it just goes into financials. Yeah, so that's, that's not... Oh, yeah, that's the last, I think, the last line. Yeah, they, and then at the very end, so uh, more government intervention, such as the Fed's promise to manage the yield, yield curve, and a more online economy are likely outcomes. Investors can pick their winners from those two certainties. And then they end with, billionaire George Soros said this week that there was no way to go back to a globalized economy post-pandemic, adding that he worries about the survival of the Eurozone and escalating U.S.-China tensions. This was written by Kenneth Raposa. So, uh, Michael, how do you feel about... I'm, I'm going to consider it a fad at, at this moment, a, a strategy fad of trading stock stonks for quick cash. <laughs> so I thought it was like at the time when the uh, I thought that the big corporations were being screwed over or the big hedge funds. I thought it was a novel and interesting idea. But I've since learned, uh, has it since come out that the whole thing was orchestrated by like some old mods of Wall Street bets in order to turn their worthless GameStop stocks into really worthwhile stuff. So it actually has more in common with a pyramid scheme then. The guys at the top of the Wall Street bets hierarchy got um richer than every everyone who poured their money in and now either can't sell yet or would sell now 
Because, I mean, now it's overinflated. I mean, I mean, this is how you make more, I don't know, shocks, I guess, which is okay. Like, I'm fairly confident that the, next. the big guys have already taken their cut, that the big, that the, uh, the Wall Street, the initial Wall Street bets people, mm-hmm. they've already taken their stuff out of the stocks. So yes. they've already made their money. Now, as far as gemming up interest in, like, say, the subculture of, like quick trading on your own using the such apps like Robinhood, which a local activist is doing and pursuing mostly like as a way of kind of back talking elders who like have invested in 401ks and they have retirement funds. Meanwhile, it's millennials and zoomers have none of that, uh, no offerings of it, no ability to do any of it. So like, this is our version of that to do the quick trading and maybe turn, you know, $50 into a hundred or a few hundred into a thousand, uh, if you're lucky enough. Or as you know, but then it kind of becomes a well. If you don't, if you do lose your money, you guess you, I guess you just weren't educated enough in how to trade. And then it kind of, to me, feels like another way of just blaming victims. Yeah. And uh, but but the point is to do it collectively as a community, like Wall Street Bets does, and then you're all kind of helping each other. But I don't really trust that as a method of say revolutionary or radical action or community empowerment or community empowerment, unless everyone's profits are going into one bank account to then be spent on community projects via some democratic process, like, a, you know, use a nonprofit and there's a board of stakeholders, stakeholders being all these activists, you know, or a neighborhood association, better, better yet, a general assembly anarchist like. But, you know, when I, when I suggested this to the activist in question, he, he didn't, I'm doing what I'm doing. He's more like being defensive against the people who are just telling him this is a really dumb idea. I'm not saying it's dumb. I'm just saying, like, it's still individualistic if you're just like, my, my wealth generation is for the community, which, like, all those ball players that say, like, well, I'm rich and I'm going to give money out. Uh, it's constructive mm-hmm. criticism. Just, uh, just also a review of last year, and then we'll move into more contemporary com- commentary is to review that um, socialist states have come out best when it comes to the pandemic. They didn't have to reallocate all the capital and jobs from uh, from that because they have somewhat of a health care and planning. Yes, the freedoms are reduced temporarily so that the health crisis is averted. So this is from uh, Julian Dante, who is the co-chair of the local DSA. That's his current title anyway. And there's just a post of his sharing, um, posting from Redfish, which I'll read after. It's very short. Uh, but uh, first, his kind of intro. This could be us, but y'all too scared of the C word. He's referring to communism. I want to start by saying I sympathize with people who gravitated towards Como during this crisis. Sure, he's a craven neoliberal cutting health care and hospital funding during a pandemic. And his education cuts were probably what triggered my own job loss. He was a teacher last year. But he's also a comforting presence who seems to offer basic competence in a frightening time with very little discretion from our supposed political leaders. While those of us on the left have been increasingly frustrated with the shockingly low standard, and I, I want to inter- interrupt myself, it seems very funny and quaint that as soon as now the election is over and Biden is president, and now suddenly people care that or it's now a scandal, and a, a, a recognized scandal, that Como has messed up when it came to the use of the um, sending COVID patients to instead of hospitals or because maybe the hospitals were, were full in certain areas to nursing homes, which then caused further elder death. And, uh, and yet and on the radio during his address yesterday, because he does them pretty daily, 
is like uh, he, he admits that there was a lack of public information. Like we didn't generate the public information fast enough, but then proceeds to blame everything else for conspiracy theories and the narratives that he caused deaths, right? It's like, look, we didn't make it. He, he repeated, we didn't make the information fast enough. And then everything else just messed up. Everyone, everything sucks. And I'm like, well, are you going to like lay out a plan for making better public information, AKA transparency? No, he doesn't mention any of that. He just keeps repeating, uh, you know, uh, a climate of uh, misinformation online and and I'm old fashioned. Now, those of us on the left have been increasingly frustrated with the shockingly low standards of our moderate friends who have accepted as normal. We should keep in mind that Americans have no example of what a rational coordinated response to this would even look like. To get a glimpse of that, even, you know, capitalism, there is no alternative. But here is one. Consider the semi-autonomous communist region of Karmala, India. Before ever anyone starts doubting the veracity of these stats because they don't like what they say, a quick Google search will confirm this information in capitalist press such as The Guardian. Though we'll, they will dutifully admit any reference to communism being the cause of their success. With a population of 38 million, uh, Kerala has had about 550 confirmed cases and only four confirmed deaths. And this was back in um, also last year, so it's probably changed. But still, uh, comparatively, California, with 39 million people, has suffered uh, 70,000 confirmed cases and 3,000 deaths. That was back a year ago. Take a minute to read this thread to see how it's possible to put the needs of people ahead of capital. Do, yeah, so the Union Communist-run state of Kerala has reported four COVID deaths uh, with little over 500 cases in the first 90 days of the outbreak in January. A state with 34 million people contained the pandemic better than most similarly sized but more developed, quote-unquote, countries. To compare California with its population, and it repeats that, how was the communist government of Kerala so successful in fighting it? Here's a thread. Early on, the government decided that the welfare of its people was more important than its welfare of capital a strategy of breaking the chain of infections by aggressive testing, contact tracing, and instituting quarantines. A strong universal health care system, which hasn't been eroded by decades of neoliberalism like the rest of the world. Transparent and clear information campaigns with the communist chief minister, Veralan, holding daily media briefings, assuring the people of careful but truthful messaging. A focus on mental health of people, ensuring that nobody feels abandoned and preventing distress caused by isolation, setting up call centers, with about 241 counselors. Close cooperation between the government and social movements, with communist youth organizations making sanitizers themselves instead of, you know, our prisoners in New York, women's cooperatives producing masks, volunteers with the Communist Party and trade unions disinfecting public spaces. Isn't it nice to have a big organization where you can coordinate volunteering instead of the hodgepodge of, like, the best, like, our city does is... It has a site with all volunteer opportunities listed on it, but it's still kind of mm -hmm. up to you, the individual, to decide what you want to help out with. It's not based on need. It's based on, like, consumer choice. Uh, a relief package mm -hmm. including free food, millions of cooked meal deliveries to school children, those in need, employment guarantee schemes. You know, this might sound familiar. This is what Vietnam did. This is what most of China did. You know, socialist states that, you know, can spend the money. And don't have to worry about the chain of payments that, you know, seem to have a different economic structure or basis for it. 
then the whole uh, our economy rests on people paying various rents. Right now in New York, we have you know landlords, petite bit landlords, um, organizing for some relief because although there was a, the eviction memorandum is still on till May first, May Day, they there's no tax memorandum, and there's no bank mortgage memorandum. You know, it's uh, so even though the so eviction memorandum is kind of a de facto um, rent freeze because those like there are many like as many of these small landlords are complaining um, in in their kind of um, aggrieved uh, tones is that like you know you have tenants who could pay but don't because they know they're not going to be evicted. It's unfair, right? But I still have to pay taxes or I still have to pay my bank mortgage, right? So that puts them in a very bad position. But everything should be freezed, right? But if everything's freezed, including taxes, that means that next year, or this meaning this year, they're like what would how would we pay for services? How would how would things continue? It's like everything the economy would in fact completely fall apart. If one sector people don't pay their rents, then nothing else seems to be able to be happened. And that's that's really precarious. It's strange how I mean I would consider this precarity, this danger, uh, all the time when I was kind of figuring out like am I a socialist? Because like I would think about like, well, how easily is it? Like and, and this was like post Katrina. You know, you you just have this big disaster and everything stops. And the capitalist, you know, fusion economy was completely helpless. It was helpless. It had no way of responding rationally or, you know, in an intelligent manner. And yeah. and so too. But instead of being isolated to New Orleans or, you know, wherever the storm hits, it was everywhere. Or it's like a storm that rolls across the whole country, right? Like in the form of a big snowstorm, like what's happened in the last week. Um, the, the, the snow, like the, the front covered the whole country. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. Texas is cold. And like, isn't there the Ted Cruz tweet of him saying that he'll believe in climate change? When Texas, Texas freezes, freezes over. over. Yeah, I saw that too. Well, uh, we, we, we ask you to hold to your oath, sir, uh, as if he has any actual honor. My first thought was, like, there have been years, in the last six years or so, right, you know, when the, the, the jet stream has weakened and thus we have these oscillating fronts of cold and hot moving through all sectors of the country. And it's like there have been times where it snows or it gets cold for maybe a day, just a day, in the south. And, again, it, it was up to you know, people in charge to think hard about like, well, if it's getting a little cold a few days now and there's these projections of climate chaos and climate change that one day will next year become two days, which in five years will become a week of freezing weather. Maybe we should be preparing to have some plows and other such tools and or, or um, protections. Now, of course, such investments, especially after you know, a century of industrialization of these areas without thinking about cold weather at all would mean, again, yes, trillions of dollars of new investment to be actually prepared for cold weather. But when we think about the money, like the dollar amounts going for, like, what would the Green New Deal really mean to weatherize everything to really prepare for climate change? It would be that much. It would entail 
actually burying all those gas lines, which were probably like they're, they're all left above ground because, hey, we don't have to worry about the weather. We don't have to insulate them. We don't have to put them underground because right. being underground yeah. is a form of insulation. And that throw was from Redfish, which is um, Australian, I think. Anyway, they, they conglomerate like uh, videos. And so last uh, on like uh, the like, what's what was your normal? Here's a black activist that was um, last fall, like at a BLM event, being interviewed by local news. When I hear things like maybe we can finally get back to normal, I think what it was your normal, uh, Tease said in the video, which was recorded by Mondi at BLM Plaza in Washington at the street celebration that broke out there on the evening of November 7th. This is actual election day, the day most news organizations declare Biden had won. Tease uh, said she heard a CNN commentator make the remark about things returning to normal. This is regarding Biden. But it is not clear which commentator made the comment. When Barack Obama was president, I was marching for Trayvon Martin and Eric Gardner, fresh out of college, he added. We had people calling the first lady a monkey. Was that the normal we're talking about? I'm confused. In response to people who believe that the work is done because Biden has been elected, T said the work is never finished. We're still in the streets. Tisa's Instagram page shows her involvement. Um, you know, she's not, she ain't lying. Uh, we're only here for the moment, Tisa continued, after referencing the cross-country celebrations of Biden's victory. You really only wanted someone to be racist and hiding. You didn't want it to be blatant. You didn't want it to be in your face. And Donald Trump was in your face, and he made y'all address the fact that America was effed up. We still have to do the work to dismantle the system that is constantly oppressing black, brown, indigenous people, all people, really. We have to make them uncomfortable. Painful, honest truths, Representative Omar said in a caption of the video. In response to all the attention, Terrace said she usually doesn't speak publicly and that she was thankful for the opportunity to share the message. I'm going to keep fighting for my people until I die, until we get change. Change that doesn't come from a government who oppresses you while they smile in your face. Okay, uh, so halfway into the hour, uh, this is the three left show, leftist uh, radical thought and analysis slash commentary. Um, so, Michael, um, so now that's that's the primer, that's the intro, really, to kind of a discussion of just like how our current situation is a dystopia or just like dystopian thinking as opposed to more utopian thinking that we we, we might as well have. And what it means to be utopian these days. Um, so there's mostly just a section, like a, a string of what I found would be pretty good points from various places. Do you like um, Slavoj Zizek, Michael? Do you, do you find him I, tolerable? I find him to be very, very interesting. Yes. I don't know. I, I like him. I think... He's an interesting communicator. I like how he is a figure. But I'm, I have to be absolutely honest. I am not very familiar with his actual... His books. His very dense uh, books. Yeah. Well, he has been lately, um, in the last year or so, and I did read something of his before about um, the Brazil wildfires. He ended that with like kind of just a call to, like, maybe we need something like call it communism but like whatever <laughs> um so this is a he, he, he kind of submits stuff for and jack even publishes it and this is called we need a socialist reset not a corporate great reset which is funny well not funny interesting as he would say as any philosopher really says uh because great reset is something that the uh 
the white supremacists kind of talk about like the using this crisis to cement that white people are going to be the slaves of the next century <laughs> or something like that. You know, they're not, not they're the minority. They can be the oppressed people and they, that would totally be ter- terrible and as, as it would be, but that's not really the goal. So I've already writes. Um, so I'm going to like, I may skip around certain points. So back in April, 2020, let's see, he starts with kind of a, that we kind of lack a stable ideology and warns us to not fall into kind of future forecasting, which a lot of mainstream media does. Back in April 2020, reacting to the COVID pandemic, Jurgen Habelbaus pointed out that existential uncertainty is now spreading globally and simultaneously in the heads of media-wired individuals themselves. There never was so much knowing about our not knowing and about the constraints to act and live in uncertainty. Habermas is right to claim that this is this not knowing does not concern only the pandemic itself. We at least have experts there, but even more, it's economic and psychic consequences. Note this precise formulation. It is not simply that we don't know what's going on. We do know, uh, but we know that we don't know what's going on. And this, you know, lack of knowledge is itself a social fact inscribed in how institutions act. You know, our government doesn't know how to respond to the pandemic. It had to do trial and error and figure things out uh, throughout the whole year and still, and now it's figuring out how to distribute vaccines properly. We now know that in, say, medical, medieval times or early modernity, uh, they knew much less, but they didn't know this because they relied on some stable ideological foundation. You know, it guarantees that our universe is a meaningful, total whole. The same holds for some visions of communism, even for Francis Fukuyama's idea of end of history. They all assumed to know where history is moving. Plus, Habermas is right to locate the uncertainty into the heads of the media wired. Our link to the wired universe tremendously expands our knowledge, but at the same time, it throws us into radical uncertainty. Are we hacked? Who controls our access? Is what we're reading there fake news? Viruses strike in both meanings of the term. They're biological and digital viruses. When we try to guess how our societies will look after the pandemic will be over, the trap is to avoid uh, a future forecasting, futurology. Futurology, by definition, ignores our lack of knowledge. Futurology is defined as a systemic forecasting of the future from present trends. And therein resides the problem. Futurology mostly extrapolates what will come from our present tendency. You know, what's going on now. So it would be the assumption that we are facing, we, we will, in 10 years, we'll be living in neo-feudalism because wealth and power are just concentrating evermore and there's nothing you can, there's nothing we can do. It's just, it's going to happen. And I, and I, and of course, I, I think we must reject that. We should perhaps Absolutely. mobilize here the distinction that works in French. So, you know, in other languages, there are actually better concepts. Uh, so they have a future and an avenue, um, which is whatever comes after the present, a future. Uh, when a president wins re-election, he is the present and future president. Uh, but he is not the president to come. The present to come is a different president. So will the post-corona universe be just another future or something new to come? It depends not only on science, but our political decisions. 
Now the time has come to say that we should have no illusions about a happy outcome of the U.S. elections, which brought such a relief among the liberals all around the world. Um, he then goes into a reference to they live with the glasses that kind of let you see what ideology. And so he mentions a meme where a cover with Biden and Kamala with time to heal. Biden's message of unity becomes as he becomes 46th president, uh, then becomes time to heal with two E's, accept Biden, obey Biden. I remember my youth and the desire for socialism with a human face against Soviet-type bureaucratic socialism. So for reference, Slavoj uh, is Slovenian. This is upper Yugoslavia, just south of Austria. I remember my youth, and it's also the most developed part of Yugoslavia because it was like close to Vienna and stuff. Uh, Biden newly proposes global capitalism with a human face. While behind the face, the same reality will remain. In education, this human face assumed the form of our obsession with well-being. Pupils and students must live in bubbles that will save them from the horrors of external reality protected by politically correct rules. You know, he's, I think he's just also he's describing what socialism, uh, the, the Eastern Bloc uh, attempted to do in the 80s, 70s and 80s, but it's also relaying that it's the same thing our system is doing now that it's in permanent crisis. Education is no longer intended to have a sobering effect of allowing us to confront reality. And when we are told that this safety will prevent mental breakdowns, we should counter it with exactly the opposite claim. Such false safety opens us up to mental crises when we have to confront our social reality. What well-being activity does is that it merely provides a false human face to our reality instead of enabling us to change this reality itself. Biden is the ultimate well-being president. So what like what am I describing with well-being? It's ugh, anything new age and anything new age that's been taken up by corporate America in corporate places like oh well-being we just need to make the workers feel better about where they are. So why is Biden still better than Trump? Critics point out that Biden also lies and represents big capital only in a more polite form. But unfortunately, this form matters. With his vulgarization of public speech, Trump was corroding the ethical substance of our lives, what Hegel called Staten, which is like a, a collective morality. Yeah, so you know, just a reminder, Trump was worse. The right reactionaries are a global movement and make up a second choice to capitalism with the human face by Biden, right? So we have that binary as kind of, as far as mainstream politics goes, that's like, those are the two choices, reactionary right wing or the moderate, you know, capitalism with a human face of Musk and, you know, we are an end in Gates. Yes, we want to help everyone. We are, you know, Gates, like there, I saw this tweet or a post of Gates gave an interview saying like, we need a hundred Elon Musk. You know, well, what if you gave hundreds of good engineers the money and resources of Elon Musk? Oh, no, we can't do that. We need, like, we just need more billionaires like Elon Musk. That's horrible. So is there an alternative to this terrifying vision other than Biden's human face? Climate activist Greta Thunberg recently offered three positive lessons of the pandemic, quoting her. It is possible to treat a crisis like a crisis. It is possible to put people's health above economic interests. And it is possible to listen to the science. Yes, but these are possibilities. 
It's also possible to treat a crisis in such a way that one uses it to obfuscate other crises, like other problems, like because of the pandemic, that we should forget about global warming. So, right, like, you know, we're so focused on the pandemic that Texas or the America itself gets blindsided by icy weather. It's also possible to use the crisis to make the rich richer and the poor poorer, which effectively has happened. Uh, and it's also possible to ignore or compartmentalize science. Just recall those who refuse to take vaccines and explosive rise of conspiracy theories. Scott Gallery gives a more or less accurate image of things in our corona time. We are barreling towards a nation where 3 million lords being served by 350 million serfs. We don't like to say this out loud, but I feel as if this pandemic has largely been invented for taking the top 10% into the top 1% and taking the rest of the 90% downward. We've decided to protect corporations, not people. Capitalism is literally collapsing on itself unless it rebuilds that pillar of empathy. We've decided that capitalism means being loving and empathetic to corporations and Darwinist and harsh towards individuals. As Jizek uh, picks up, so which is Galloway's way out? How should we prevent social collapse? His answer is that capitalism will collapse on itself without more empathy and love. We're entering the Great Reset, and it's happening quickly. So we're resetting like corporate capitalism. Many companies will tragically be lost to the economic fallout of the pandemic, you know, local businesses. And those that do survive will exist in a different form, you know, completely online sellers, which has been a process um, aside, you know, that's been kind of going on for the last 15 years. Distributed teams currently thriving with less. Oh, yeah. So organizers will be far more adaptable and resilient. Distributed teams currently thriving with less oversight will crave that same autonomy going forward. Employees will expect executives to continue leading with transparency, authenticity, and humanity. This is all quoting Galloway. Now we pick up from GZX and response to this. But again, how will this be done? Galloway proposes creative destruction that lets failing businesses fail while protecting people who lose jobs. Quoting him, we let people get fired so that Apple can emerge and put Sun Microchips out of business. And then we take that incredible prosperity and we're more empathetic with people. Problem is, of course, who is the mysterious we in the last quoted sentence? How exactly is the redistribution done? We just tax the winners, Apple in this case, more while allowing them to maintain their monopolistic position, their monopoly. Galloway's idea has a certain dialectical flair. The only way to reduce inequality and poverty is to allow the market competition to do its cruel job. We let people get fired, and then what? Do we expect market mechanisms themselves to create new jobs? Or the state? How are love and empathy made into operations, corporate operations? How do we count on the winner's empathy and expect that they will behave like Gates and Buffett? I find this Supplement and, uh, supplementation of market mechanisms by morality, love, and empathy, a problem. Instead of enabling us to get the best of both worlds, a market egoism and a moral empathy, it is much more probable that we'll get the worst of both worlds. The human face of this leading with transparency, was that an oof? Yeah. Yeah, oof. 
Leading with transparency, authenticity, and humanity are Gates, Bezos, Zuckerberg, the faces of authoritarian corporate capitalism, who all pose as humanitarian heroes, as our new aristocracy celebrated in our media and quoted as wise humanitarians. Gates gives billions to charities, but we should remember how he opposed Elizabeth Warren's plan and a small rise in taxes. He praised Pinckney and once almost proclaimed himself a socialist, true, but in a very specific twisted sense. His wealth comes from privatizing what Marx called the commons, our shared social space. Gates' wealth has nothing to do with the production costs of products, and so on, so on. So let's, let's go move on. So just a paragraph down. Is there a third way outside the space of these two extremes of restoring the old normality with a great reset? Yes, a true great reset. It is no secret what needs to be done. Greta Thunberg made it clear. First, we should finally recognize the pandemic crisis as what it is, part of a global crisis of our entire way of life, from ecology to new social tensions. Second, we should establish social control and regulation over our economy. We have a word for that, but social control of the economy is, you know, not not bad alternative, right? Third, we should rely on science, rely on but not accept it as the agency which makes the decisions. Why not? Let's return to Habermas. Uh, and then he goes into kind of a philosophy discussion of like knowing and not knowing, kind of uh, what is called uh, epistemology, the philosophy of knowing things. Uh, let's skip ahead to, uh, and this is kind of goes back to the Indian uh, state, it is with regard to what we don't know that we know are presumptions and prejudices that China, meaning also Taiwan and Vietnam, did it much better than Europe and the U.S. I'm getting tired of the eternally repeated claim, yes, the Chinese contained the virus, but at what price? I agree that we need a Julian Assange to let us know what really went on there. The whole story, but the fact is that when the epidemic exploded in Wuhan, they immediately imposed lockdowns and put on a standstill the majority of production in the entire country, clearly giving priority to human lives over the economy. With some delay, true, they took the crisis very seriously. Now they are reaping the reward, even in the economy. And let's be clear, this is only possible because the Communist Party is still able to control and regulate its own economy. There is social control over market mechanisms, although a totalitarian one, not a democratic one. However, again, the question is not how they did it in China, but how should we do it? The Chinese way is not the only effective way. It is not objectively necessary in any sense. The, uh, the epidemic is not just a viral process. It is a process that takes place within our certain conditions. And they are, or they are open to change. Now, at the very end of 2020, we live in a crazy time in which the hope that vaccines will work is mixed with a growing depression, despair even, due to the growing number of infections and the almost daily discoveries of the new unknowns of the virus. In principle, the answer to what is to be done is easy here. We have the means and resources to restructure health care so that it serves the needs of the people in a time of crisis. However, to quote the last line of Brecht's in praise of communism from his play Mother, it is a simple thing that is the hard thing to do. There are many obstacles that make it hard to do, above all, global capitalist order and its hegemony. Do we then need a new communism? Yes, but what I am tempted to call a moderately conservative one. All the steps, and then he uses words like this all the time, like really funny. <laughs> all the steps 
are necessary from global mobilization against viral and other threats. But what he means is that let me go move down that like when he means it's like it's moderate as in like it, it it's like it's done over time and it's conservative and that it's about conserving actually our way of life. We use communism to ensure that there is no big change. Isn't that an interesting way of framing it? Like instead of framing radical changes, like we need to change everything and how we do everything. That's what's scary to people, right? What if it's like, no, no, we're going to use communism. We need communism or, or, or social control of the economy. We can put it that way. So that the supermarkets operate as they do and, and your, um, and your lifestyle remains the same. Yeah. Cause otherwise it is going to be evaporate. The communism I am speaking about is exactly such a tendency. Reasons for it are obvious, and we should read the way global capitalism is reacting to the pandemic precisely as a set of reactions to a collective tendency or communist tendency. The fake reset, a nationalist populism, solidarity being reduced to empathy, you know, these are all reactions to us demanding something better, something more social. So how, if, when, uh, will this communist tendency prevail? A sad answer through more repeated crises. Let's put it clearly. The virus is atheist in its strongest sense of the term. He says this all the time. This is more atheist in the strongest sense, meaning it does not care about all these other things. There's no deeper message. Before choosing the famous Virgil line, his motto in the interpretation of dreams is Freud. He considered another candidate. Satan's words from Milton's Paradise Lost. What reinforcement we may gain from hope, if not what resolution from despair? But what if we cannot get reinforcement from hope? If we are compelled to admit that our situation is hopeless, we should gain resolution from despair. This is how we, contemporary Satans who are destroying our earth, should react to the viral and ecological threat. Instead of looking vainly for reinforcement in some hope, we should accept that our situation is desperate and act upon it. To quote Thunberg again, Doing our best is no longer good enough. Now we need to do the seemingly impossible. Futurology deals with what is possible. We need to do what is, from the standpoint of the existing global order, the impossible. Which go, which harkens back to Occupy slogans like "Another world is possible." Mm-hmm. And any any expanding thoughts on that, Michael? Did you or did it all just crash on you, and you still have to process it? I like it. I like. I like the way that Slavoj uses language to interpret things and express things in ways that, as a native English speaker, I'm not exactly used to. And it like kind of opens up new avenues and new ways of looking at things that I hadn't thought of. It brings to mind how like critical thinking or better thinking or whatever being smart to me kind of being defined as like, and maybe this is like, uh, there's words for it, but it's like having a better vocabulary is everything. Like the people with low, like low vocabularies, like they just, they have all the good thoughts. They can have all the great ideas, but they don't have the vocabulary to express it, you know, or, or they can't think of the idea. Like they, they don't think of the ideas or one person can't hypothetical person because they don't have the vocabulary to even express it in their own minds. The more you read or the more you listen to 
the more different things you listen to, the more vocabulary you have, whether even if it's like in a different language or from someone from another country or someone from a different social structure. You know, this is what makes somebody more aware, awareness. Another, uh, yeah, that's the other key to critical, like awareness. Like, cause I'm told like, and this is like a mental health well-being thing too, is awareness, being aware of your emotions, being aware of where your emotions are coming from. You know, the people who really have problems controlling themselves and they, you know, they beat others around them or violence occurs, don't even, they can't process why they're mad at things. Or like, so they can't address why, what's making them mad. And then it, it, they have to take it out on other things. And this, this kind of scales up to the whole society. You know, as a society, we don't recognize what the problems are. We start taking it out on the nearest minority or, uh, yeah. or the, or the nearest person annoying us, uh, you yeah. know, the, like the homeless or something like we have a housing crisis and it's taken out on the homeless because the market cannot does not have the ability or vocabulary to invest in social ownership or like, cause we have to like do things like individually that like, it's up to local property owners to put in a hostile architecture to get the homeless off their property. When it's like, if, if it's a collective solution of building housing for the homeless, the state or the city would say, we don't have the money to do that. And that's because all the money that could be used to actually just build homes is going into hostile architecture and, and every quote unquote, everybody slash business owners kind of having to deal with things themselves. And this, and this, and this kind of goes to the heart of like, what's the tragedy in Texas. Everyone was just on their own because no collective spending could be decided on. It was impossible. It was, it was never an option. It was never like imagined that the state of Texas could spend money on winterizing anything because there's no winter, but there was going, there was slowly being a winter, you know, just one day at a time. But like, if it, if it flurries once in Texas and you know, like there would be videos, there'd be humorous to me. Do you remember these where it's like all the cars are slip and sliding and they're just bumping into each other. And it's like bumper cars. Like I, it's kind of humorous. It's funny, but then I'm thinking like, okay, are they going to like get better tires for next year? Since like this happened once probably will happen again. Like, no, none of them did it. They were like, oh, you know, bad year, bad luck. But it's like, you remember, shouldn't you remember the hits when it does happen? And then, and then actually, yeah. but it's like, then there's a rejection of like, oh, we don't want to over-prepare because then we will be, I don't know, misallocating our money. But then you die <laughs> or, or your neighbors die. It's terrible. So Shavoy brought up a few concepts that I actually want to expand on a little bit. Um, and, uh, and it'll, it'll weave together. So one will be about, uh, VR. So like, um, kind of interested in it, but as other kind of YouTubers will point out that like, as long as it's corporate entities that are going to be rolling out this tech, it's going to be used for, as they put it, greedy ends. You know, this is from a normie person who doesn't have anti-capitalist analysis or viewpoints. So they're just seeing it as far as like, is it greedy or not greedy? Um, it's going to be used into cyber dystopia, you know, but it's like, are we already there? We're already there. Right. Well, that's a question. Like, uh, is it, just, it doesn't feel like a dystopia because we're still like, we still have this free will in a, of our own, except we're all going insane. 
Uh, so we'll, we'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the Three Left Show for going in a different direction. Radical leftist uh, news analysis and commentary, um, talking about coronavirus, um, the ongoing crisis, meta crisis, the permanent crisis. 
and dystopia um, and how our ruling class is thinking about handling it or whatever. Um, Michael, are you? I returned. Hello. Yes. Okay. So you, do you have the story uh, that I linked you to? Yes. I have a very interesting article from Wired in front of me. The article is titled, Billionaires See VR as a Way to Avoid Radical Social Change. Tech oligarchs are encouraging the creation of virtual worlds as a way, cheap way to avoid problems in the real one. Now, I do have a, a small interest in VR. Like, there's there's a cheaper set that's like $300, but even maybe without that, I could at least like put my modeling architecture expertise to helping others who do know what they're doing into making virtual spaces. So there's like kind of that an interest. Be, I was turned on. That'd to that. be really cool. Like if you were to design like virtual architecture to design like virtual spaces that people could exist in in VR, that would be really interesting. Yes, it, it is. And so like it would entail that I maybe I learn unity. Um, there's, so there's a lot of steps and, and man hours involved. So it's kind of on the back burner as an idea, like many others. Like I have all these other kind of small business ideas. Like for example, last week I made pickles from scratch for the first time. It was pretty easy. And, and when I shared them with my friend, he's like, this is the third best pickle I've ever had. And they are delicious. They came out great. I was surprised how good they came out. And I'm like, you know, if I made like a case of like 24 case of these, I could probably sell these at the co-op. You know, it's like I should, you know, do a, there, there's no pickle seller. Well, maybe there is at the farmer's markets, but not one in Albany. We need each kind of food stuff, you know. There needs to be someone making it in Albany. It would never cover the whole city, but like, that should be the goal, that for a, a small city of 100,000, there should be somebody or some collective making pickles that everyone can get, um, everyone who likes pickles. And my nieces love pickles, so... There, there you go. Let me go forward with the uh, with the article. Yeah. So, the future of virtual reality is far more than just video games. Silicon Valley sees the creation of virtual worlds as the ultimate free market solution to a political problem. In a world of increasing wealth inequality, environmental disaster, and political instability. Why not just sell everyone a device that whisks them away to a virtual world, free from that pain and suffering? <laughs> Tech billionaires aren't shy about sharing this. Some people read this the wrong way and read incorrectly into it. The promise of VR is to make the world you wanted. It is not possible on Earth to give everyone all that they want. Not everyone can have Richard Branson's private island. Doom co-creator and former CEO of Oculus, John Carmack, told Joe Rogan during a 2020 interview. People react negatively to any talk of economics, but it is resource allocation. You have to make decisions about where things go. Economically, you could deliver a lot more value to a lot of people in a virtual sense. So, like most rich headbutts, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, oh, uh, butt hats, um, they... He kind of confuses that people's needs or desires are that everyone live like a millionaire when really we just want basic health care, housing, and so on. When it comes to luxuries, yeah, we want to be able to earn those ourselves. I feel like we earn them. But when it comes to basics to live, that's 
that's the allocation that we're kind of talking about. So virtual reality is an attractive escape, but it's not a solution to the world's ills. The problems of the real world will persist beyond the borders of the metaverse created by companies such as Epic, Valve, and Facebook. Without decisive and radical action, our planet will continue to burn. The gap between the rich and the poor will grow, and totalitarian political movements will flourish. All while some of us are plugged into a virtual world. Worse, the virtual world will be one owned and controlled by the companies that create them. By the principle of the free market Silicon Valley lives and dies by, virtual reality is a loser. Only 1.7% of Steam users have a VR headset, according to a December 2020 hardware survey. And while it's true that sales of headsets are up during the pandemic, roughly 30% in 2020 over 2019, video game sales in general are up overall. Valve released Half-Life... Alex, it's Alex. Alex. She's the the female character in Half-Life. Okay, Half-Life Alex in March 2020, just as the lockdowns were beginning. This was the first Half-Life game in 13 years. The continuation of a franchise fans have been desperate to play for more than a decade. It sold well for a VR title, somewhere north of 2 million copies, but it didn't match the incredible numbers of 2020's top-selling titles and was quickly forgotten by the mainstream press. Unless you're really into VR, you probably weren't talking about Half-Life in 2020. I think most gamers aren't talking about Half-Life in 2020. I mean, I think people stopped talking about Half-Life in 2012. <laughs> yeah. Um, as a gamer myself. But anyway, I'm not... The Half-Life fan base is, is quite fanatic. The reasons why are obvious. First, virtual reality is expensive. At the high end, Valve's premier headset, the Valve Index, costs $1,000. On the cheaper end... Facebook's Oculus Quest 2 is $299. To play Alex, those headsets need to be wired to a high-end gaming PC. The price of these machines vary, but something that can handle VR will cost around $1,000. Once the machine is built and the headset hooked up, the player will need to carve out a dedicated physical space to play the game. Most games require a minimum of 6 feet by 5 feet, but the more space you have, the better. VR requires an incredible amount of cash and free space to set up properly. And the headaches don't stop there. Right now, it reminds me of the early days of computer gaming. It works most of the time, but I've spent hours tweaking settings, adjusting controls, and reconfiguring hardware in a desperate bid to achieve the optimal experience. Cash, space, and time is no guarantee that you'll enjoy VR games. Some people experience nausea and vertigo in virtual reality. Sometimes you can overcome this by properly adjusting the hardware or slowly exposing yourself to the technology. Some people get their quote-unquote VR legs and adjust. Others never do. Setting aside VR sickness, the technology is incredibly inaccessible for differently abled people. The industry made huge strides towards making video games accessible to a wide range of people in 2020. But virtual reality, with its bulky headsets and strange controllers, is simply impossible for some people to use. But all these problems can be overcome. 
As Carmack mentioned in his Rogan interview, tech companies will drive down the cost of the headsets. Moore's Law may be crapping out in terms of absolute performance, but we've still got a lot of price performance that we can drive out of these things, he said. We can have virtual reality devices that can get cheap enough that lots and lots of people will be able to have these. You know, if you have a certain income, I suppose. Right. Of course. So Carmack was explicit about the importance of tech companies pushing virtual reality. Not everyone can have a mansion. Not everyone can have a home theater. Not these everyone are- can have a home. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that, that's, are- that's the unsaid uh, part. Right. These are things we can simulate to some degree in virtual reality. Now, the simulation is not as good as the real thing. If you are rich and have your own home theater or mansion in private island, good for you. You're probably not the people that are going to benefit the most, he said. Most of the people in the world that live in cramped quarters that are not what they would choose if they had unlimited resources. This is absolutely true. Most people in the world live in cramped quarters and would choose not to. But Caramac's solution is to create a virtual world where people can escape. It's a promise of a future where living conditions are still cramped, but people have accepted their material conditions and it retreated into a fantasy world created by tech companies. So this whole article is ignoring the basic fundamental fact that VR is not an acceptable alternative for those whose basic needs are not being met. If your basic needs aren't being met, being showed a virtual image of those basic needs will not meet those needs. I mean, maybe like the in in some uh, eventually like the solution to homelessness will be to because buying a house is too expensive or or providing uh, single occupancy units. Um, right. We'll just provide a three hundred dollar VR set once the computing power is just in the headset. We can give each of the homeless guy, uh, mostly men, but it's also women, one of these sets, and then uh, then they can they can live in the street, but then believe that they they live in a house. That'll, that'll oh be it. God. That'll be the solution. Oh my god! <laughs> now this is all aside from other kind of other uh, different conversation of uh, not so much concern, but like. In my vision of, like, if I were to develop my VR skills, my ability to use Unity and craft spaces, maybe I don't buy the headset myself because I watch videos of, of the guys kind of using it and experimenting with it where they build, they, they use, like, the, the basic tool set to make a VR version of their living room that is slightly better than their current living room because it's maybe a little bigger or it has a virtual view of nature uh, that they don't have normally. Or, or or it's or it's in a video game, it's like the video game rendering. But like so so my vision is like so in we have Zoom chat meetings where it's just face to face. What if we're all in VR using kind of video or avatars, but we're doing so in a communal assembly space where we are in fact, in fact kind of more interacting with each other. We're in a interactive space. But then that's kind of like, then it's like, again, then it's like, is, is this not just a, well, as far as like isolation, necessary isolation, that's good. 
if we get to a place where we're mostly vaccinated or we have we're able to manage the spread of these super viruses to the point where we can at least in local communities actually interact and um and then conglomerate in places we should be building these communal meeting places anyway you know we should be rehabbing our buildings we should not be letting uh our urban cores rot um doing everything possible all right so it will not stop at just screens and speakers elon musk is working on a brain machine interface called Neuralink. probably means it won't work right similarly valve's gabe newell is heavily invested in creating the literal matrix quote we're way closer to the Matrix than people realize, Newell told IGN in 2020. In a televised interview with New Zealand's One News, Newell was explicit about creating a world where brains and computers interface, and computers are able to make changes to the brain. He even called the body a meat peripheral and further dehumanized the physical form. You're used to experiencing the world through eyes, but eyes were created by this low-cost bidder that didn't care about failure rates in RMAs. And if it got broken, there was no way to repair anything effectively, which totally makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, but is not at all reflective of consumer preferences, Newell said, sounding like a cartoon villain. He absolutely <laughs> is. I mean, I'm, I mean, this is the perspective of, like, the post-humanists, of, like, the goal of the super rich here is like, cause they can imagine it cause they have it all arrayed in front of them is to put their consciousness into robots. And that's kind right. of what he's talking about. Like, yeah, let's ditch these meat bodies. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's totally cartoony. Oh. It's exaggerated. It's, I mean, that's what kind of wealth does. It exaggerates negative or sometimes monstrous, but also, I mean, it yeah. can, it's assumed that it could also exaggerate like empathy and other types of things, but of course it doesn't. But carry on. Yeah. So for Newell, the goal is to create a fantasy world better and more fascinating than the real one. Quote, so the visual experience, the visual fidelity will be able to create the real world will stop being the metric that we apply to the best possible visual fidelity. He said, the real world will seem flat, colorless, and blurry compared to the experiences you'll be able to create in people's brains. Well, I guess it will be if it is a complete hellhole and everything is like on yeah. fire. So I guess it will be, but uh, self-fulfilling self prophecy. So if all of this sounds like a nightmarish future vision where the world burns around us while we retreat into fantasy worlds, you're not alone. There's this piece of art that goes around the internet of this dystopian kid in the corner drooling with goggles on with rainbow pictures, and it's a terrible-looking place, Carmack told Rogan. And people say, this is the world you're trying to build, people plugged into virtual reality and ignoring the world around them. Carmack's response isn't encouraging. Is his life really better if he takes them off and he's in this horrible place? He asked. I live in Dallas. It's 100 degrees there. We change the world around us. Not anymore. <laughs> and all that we do, we live in air conditioning. People don't generally go, oh, you're not experiencing the world around you because of air conditioning. That, that is what human beings do. We bend the world to our will. Their wills. 
If you want a picture of the future, imagine a Facebook-branded VR goggle set strapped to an emaciated human face forever. So for Carmack, virtual reality is a path to making the world a better place. That's how the world gets better, by building technologies and distributing them to people so that they have something better than they would have had if it didn't exist. Some people, you know, 20% of people. Right, exactly. But that assessment of virtual reality ignores several fundamental lessons we've learned about technology in the past few decades. Far from liberating the world, technology has introduced new methods of control into our lives. Power changed hands as Silicon Valley came to dominate our lives. Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon wields an incredible amount of control over our lives. And much of the power they wield is oculated. Or occluded? I'm not actually... Keep reading. I'm going to look up that that word. The the rush to create digital worlds ignores both the harsh realities of the physical and the ways we might all be manipulated if tech companies control not just the apps we use every day, but the very world we inhabit. Look at Epic. I think it's basically a synonym of... So occluded is a synonym of, we call it, obfuscation. So to occlude, to cause or become closed or obstruct, prevent passage, to obfuscate, to make opaque... You know, basically, huh. it, their power right. is unseen, right? It's not, we don't feel it as like a jackboot on our face. Right. Like the reference of like the imagine, you know, imagine the future. That's a 1984 reference, by the way. Right. Okay. So let me just quickly finish this. Mm-hmm. Look at Epic, whose Fortnite is lauded as the first metaverse. Far from being a land of unrestrained freedom and partial palaces palatial. for everyone. That's the word, palatial. palatial. palaces for everyone. Fortnite is a popular video game that sometimes hosts impressive live events while slowly selling its inhabitants goofy costumes. Virtual worlds will be molded in the image of their creators, not their participants. Already, landlords are dividing up real estates in the blockchain-based metaverse Upland. When Apple and Fortnite go to war, it's their users who suffer. Virtual worlds can be anything we want them to be, but Silicon Valley sees them as a place to push digital mansions and movie theaters on the hoi polloi. It would be a simulacrum, an air stats world like ours with the pain edited out. And you, you can bet they'll charge top dollar. So there's 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 one there's one side of like the uh, dystopia going on uh, the development yeah. of it, and and there's there's just like when they're asked they're very forthcoming about what they're doing. It's um, but right. but they don't see the strings that they're laying out because they're just making money and 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 so on because they do have to continuously generate profit and more profit growth of profit. Go to um, the Jinquisition a YouTube game, a video game journalist who is MB. They're not transitioning, but they're basically like becoming more feminine. Uh, Jim Quisition. They talk about capitalism and gaming industry in very good, contrite and entertaining ways. So the last, uh, so we're going to finish up the show with another, it's a long piece, but we're going to jump around. I'm going to like, maybe just stick with the thesis here. And it's actually, it's not an article or anything like that. This is a chapter of a book 
called On Necrocapitalism. It's chapter seven. Uh, it was shared on a you know Facebook page, the solar punk pages or something, or eco-socialism, whatever. And it's basically about dystopias and the pandemic. So the pandemic seems to possess all the characteristics of dystopia, or at the very least, a pre-dystopia. The events of social breakdown leading up to the imposition of an authoritarian state, a state machine, or return to the natural pre-state Hobbian state. You know, there's two kinds of dystopias. There's the the kind of dawn of the dead or, you know, zombie apocalypse kind where all of the institutions have broken down and there is no civilization or we have a consolidated super civilization that is all encompassing. Two extremes. The culture industry machine has been pre-described, transcribed with such events in multiple movies, books, and novels. A Morfrod Paul wrote in a blog post about the pandemic, we have been utterly saturated in fictional pandemic paranoia, both fantastic and realist. His statement about such pre-trans, uh, pre-transcription dystopian paranoia, meaning like the, that phrase means like culture that kind of gets us thinking about ways a certain way, so then that's the way we kind of act and react. Paran- like paranoia about pandemics, and then a pandemic happens, and then we're all paranoid about it. <laughs> But the apprehension of the pandemic as dystopian, or the preface of one, is becoming a common trope in coronavirus discourse. More than one opinion piece has declared that we are living in an actual unfolding dystopia, that social isolation and quarantine measures are directly out of some dystopian movie or novel, and that, this isn't funny, the real-world zombie apocalypse is boring because we are all the extras, locked inside and glued to social media while the apocalypse rages around us and a new dystopian reality is on the horizon? Question mark. But here is it is worth noting. Before we say anything else about these analysis of, pan, of the pandemic, they might be cute, but they largely miss the point. For one thing, they miss the ways in which the pandemic is experienced globally by the most marginalized populations. It's far worse than people who don't actually are able to socially isolate. Uh, who do not experience it as boring, but instead experience it as a vi- with visceral fear and trepidation. As a previous chapter made clear, you know, the people whose family members are actually dying. We don't have to travel very far to the margins to know about this fear and trepidation. Those already trapped in situations of domestic abuse will experience as an isolation from their support networks. For another, the supposed apocalypse that we are experiencing, we in quotes, that precipice is a dystopia, has been the way things are, as we have already discussed for in the rest of the book, I guess, a, ma- a vast majority of the world and for a long time. Again, the discussion of the last chapter, chapter six, I guess, is timely uh, about patriarchal violence, as with other de- depredations of capitalism, they're endemic to the system, and is in fact dystopian. The reality of public homes for the elderly and infirm are merely revealing themselves as nightmare factories in the time of pandemic. The necrotic characteristics of capitalism that were always with us and don't go away in these times, as much as some want to pretend it is only now that we approach dystopia, they are in fact accentuated. George Floyd was strangled to death in Minneapolis, another victim of racist pig violence. A violence was business as usual before the pandemic. Uh, A Regis Pequot was pushed off her balcony by Toronto pigs a couple couple days later. The dystopia is already here, was here before the pandemic. 
Though it seems like state of emergency measures were taking advantage of what was already the state of affairs. But this is what capitalism always was, and what it always will be. These are not exceptional moments, even within the exception of the pandemic. Exceptions in quotes, of course. It's a new reality. They attest to the fact that capitalist dystopia was already in effect, and that maybe, just maybe, the situation of the pandemic could reveal that this dystopia was always in operation. In a prologue, we indicated that the ways in which the pigs, <laughs> always referring to the police as pigs, were mobilizing as filibusters but during the pandemic. But this is simply an extension of the capitalist normality. That's interesting, calling like the, the police brutality kind of debate or um, movement against police brutality is almost like a filibuster. Like the system is kind of rambling on with this like low-level violence when really there's the meta-violence of the thousands of tens of thousands of dead. When Gerald Horn, Gerald Horn, that, I think that name rings a bell, he called the transitionary period to capitalism the apocalypse of settler colonialism. He was being quite literal. The grisly violence of colonial occupation, the genocide, the slavery, was an apocalypse for its victims. The many nations subjected to this violence experienced an end of days. The libraries of Tenochtitlan, for example, were burned, thus consigning multiple cultural lineages to limbo. Entire populations were eradicated. Famine was engineered. Biological warfare pandemics were released on a scale that puts the coronavirus pandemic to shame. You know, smallpox and blankets. Yeah. Thus, in a very concrete way, to speak of the pandemic as our first experience of a real dystopia belies the fact that such a, such a thing has been the norm since the emergence of our system. Most of the world continues to live under the shadow of this norm, the deepest recesses of which are only accentuated by the pandemic, like they're only expressed. Mm. Now, I want to kind of put in the caveat, maybe uh, more about how even with all of these ways of describing our current system and its injustices, things are still better with industrial capitalism than before, at least in certain ways. Primitivists would argue that everything's always been worse, but Bronze Age and Iron Age states, like, they were slave states. The suffering was, like, even worse. And people didn't even live that long. <laughs> now at least we live longer. Uh, certain amounts of us live longer. The average lifespan is longer. And that itself is kind of like the meta improvement of everything. And so now it's like we turn towards reducing the harms. And social change and, and the change we're talking about or change we want a socialist movement to do is kind of like, well, just reduce the harm or real harm reduction. So, yeah, I've, I've covered the thesis that was the thesis of all this. This is a long, you know, it's a chapter of a book. Perhaps the discursive element to the formation of capitalist, our imaginations, is the concept of dystopia itself. So this this, this whole chapter is just about dystopian thinking uh, in, in our fiction. It is it's from this concept best represented as a literary genre that we not only receive connected concepts such as totalitarian but what capitalism justifies itself as a rational order of freedom in comparison by its anti-capitalist double. By presenting all attempts to transgress capitalism uh, as determined by dystopian logic, a fiction about capitalism's sanctity is constructed. So it's basically talking about how 
Um, in most dystopian fiction, it's mostly people who want to build a more social society and it's like, and they succeed and that's what's bad. It's always satanic and, and whatnot, whatnot or, or it's totalitarian. As with the attribution of mass murder to anti-capitalist movements, the dystopian discourse is a practice of displacement by describing dystopia to an other, you know, anti-capitalism. Capitalism masks the very real fact that it is the dystopia par excellence. Perhaps the most ironic or iconic dystopian novel is George Orwell's 1984. Other works of dystopian literature are often judged based on its dis distance or proximity to Orwell's classic. As mentioned, one of its hallmarks of this genre is the trope of a totalitarian government. Um, and then mentions that Orwell himself gave a list of names of, of communists to the British Empire and was kind of a functionary in it. So he kind of ignored the dystopia of the British Empire and its famines and whatnot because there was more of a fear of the, uh, the Stalinist regime. And it's dystopia. So he goes through kind of critiques of through like U.S. imperialism, all very horrific, like um, in Indonesia when the CIA basically kind of instigated all of the military reactionaries to basically kill all the, every communist in Indonesia. And now like any, when they do it in Latin America, they call it Operation Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia to try it again in Brazil. And thus, even so, instead of talking about, you know, genocides centuries ago, we can talk about the more political genocide of wiping out every left-winger in a country. And that's sort of a, a type of apocalypse and dystopia. Because that's what occurs in Latin America. That if you're a leftist, you get disappeared in the same way that in, in 1984. And that's, that's something that the CIA, our democracy does. But then, and then, he, and then he talks about more uh, actual socialist dystopian writing and how it's it kind of subverts this um, dynamic. We would be remiss, however, if we did not address the fact that the dystopian genre predates its incorporation into capitalist ideology, you know, mainstream thinking. Although it is the case that now dystopian literature and film is essentially, with very few exceptions, a genre that valorizes capitalism, this was not always the case. A more progressive type of dystopian, but of course, I think in defense, it's also valorizing liberal democracy and that like, if you get rid of the system we have, you won't have any liberal democracy, which is kind of true. You could have a different type of democracy. A more progressive type of dystopian literature existed before the variant that Orwell would make the new paradigm. Maybe this can point the way to how we can understand that the current global order is in fact dystopian. The way a communist imaginary uh, imagination generates its own notions of dystopia, which is what we would have been talking about since the beginning of the chapter. So he goes to Jack London's The Iron Heel, uh, written in 1908. So it predates 1984 by four decades. And it was not, it's not an other mora morality tale meant to rectify Western liberal democracy. It is possessed by a cautionary dimension projected into the future. This dimension was about London's contemporary concerns of the dystopian future he described was simply a capitalist order he despised as a socialist. The future was intended to be a metaphor of the present, as most sci-fi is. The dystopian order of the Iron Heel is thus a metaphor for a future unfolding under the rules of London's present. His argument, regardless of the book's faults, you know, he has a 
prevalent machismo and sexism, old school brochialist, was that the future dystopia is already present and thus must be transformed. And yet the London, the distant future imaginary is not dystopian, but a utopian one. He constructed a near future dystopia that is analogous to the present, but that is analyzed by a progressive. So, you know, he's, this is like literature criticism here, so I'm going to skip ahead. Oh, yeah, so another author that he mentions here is a kind of non-Orwellian conception of dystopia represented by London, but not unique to him. So a Stanislav Lem's Memoirs Found in a Bathtub, which was written in 61, is a similar example of this kind of progressive dystopian story. Progressive dystopian uh, literature. A breakdown of the capitalist order typified by the height of the Cold War violence Redeemed by a distant future socialist inocular who looks back on the wages of capitalism with horrified complexity. The meta, quoting, the metaphysical principle somehow merged with the materialistic, the earthy, writes the anonymous communist future anthropologist, perplexed by the archaeological remnants of our capitalist present. So basically it's a sci-fi story where you have a communist future archaeologist and they're kind of looking at these weird things. They, they worship the deity, Capital become one of the dominant cults of this time. This deity was revered through America, and the faith quickly spread to Australia and the parts of the European Peninsula, and so on. And they worship the almighty Dalal. Lem's dystopian <laughs> order is a castration of the present from the future, from a future perspective. So how is this better, or at least something to look into and read if you are a fan of the sci-fi? Right. Uh, the dystopian narrative ends with the author of the memoirs encounters a corpse in a bathtub, its throat slit by a razor still clutched in its hands, and demands that this traitor corpse give it the razor so that the author can join in suicide. When judged from an imagined communist future, capitalism is a corpse that demands its subject join it in suicide. So I want to uh, switch gears that I actually have a book written by this Lem character. So I got it at the local bookshop. Uh, but it's titled The Futurological Congress. So it is, in fact, also making fun of those who are forecasting the future based on the present. And okay. it's also a book that's heavily reliant on psychedelics. And as far as, like, the future is defined by psychochemistry and people using psychedelics to change their perception. In the same way that the VR headsets change one's perception of reality uh, with technology, um, though, of course, psychedelics are also a type of technology especially when it's like say this pill is designed to make you feel happy or this pill is designed to make you feel compliant or believe the next thing or whatever so right. the, to summarize the book he basically has an inception level amount of uh, trips and each trip is like the experience of him getting frozen and thought out in the future you know that trope the futurama trope mm -hmm. but it happens three times because each time, like, uh, the future goes wrong, but then he awakes into the next hallucination. <laughs> and then it all happens again. But uh, I wanted to, like, read uh, an excerpt here. I'm throwing this on you, Michael. But it, it is quite entertaining. So... All right. So the ending... So the, the ending is... So after, like, he's been in this utopian uh, fantasy where everyone's regulating their emotions with psych chem. And, uh, and there's all these hallucinations and, but the, the, but something seems off, right? You know, there's, there's the twist ending of what is wrong. So he's basically come to the, um, the part of the matrix where he's in front of the architect from the second movie, you know, but this is like, kind of, this is what I wish Neo was like 
how like Neo acted in that movie with kind of sarcasm and irony instead of just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, to, to, so, so the, the twist is that the utopian society that is super consumerist, but like kind of future logical in that it's forecasting a future from the sixties, uh, you know, which is today. And, uh, and it has like all these changes in vocabulary and tech and whatever. It's all actually a hallucination. Everyone's been so drugged up that actually the world is experiencing a coming ice age. It's cold, but everyone's just so drugged up that they think everything is like normal. Like the, the weather is pleasant. It's always pleasant and so on. But like people get randomly out of breath. It turns out like every time they think they're using a machine, they're just actually using their body. So like, oh, they imagine that they're 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 drugged up to imagine they're taking the elevator when really they're climbing up the elevator shaft. And everyone's also really ugly and mutated, and it's all very. He's just like, it's the end of like you know the dystopian novel, right? It's a, he's freaking out, but he comes across then the architect, right? The the kind of like guy in the room who's in charge. Have a seat, he said. This will take a while. I sat. The room with window plays and window panes intact was an oasis of tidiness and warmth and in general neglect. No freezing drafts, no snow drifts in the corner, a pot of steaming black coffee, an ashtray, a dictaphone hanging on the wall above his head, a few female nudes in color. Odd, though, that these photograph bodies should have no scales or bristles, and odd that they should strike me odd. <laughs> now you've done it, he said abruptly, and note that you have only yourself to blame, the best nurse, the only soothsayer in the neighborhood, doing everything his best to help you, but no, you had to go rooting around for the truth on your own. Me? I said, stunned by his words, and before I could gather my thoughts, before I could digest what he was saying, he snapped. Please, no lies, it's a little late for that. You thought you could be so frightfully clever, parading out all those protests, those grievances of yours, your suspicions about hallucinating, sewers, hotel rats, mounting, saddling. You did the really think such primitive inventions would serve the purpose. Only a grandfather stiff could be so incredulously stupid. Grandfather stiff is slang for, like, people who've been thought out. <laughs> I listened to him, my mouth hanging open, and then suddenly it hit me. Any denial would be in vain. He would never believe me, for he took me, my general obsessions, for some sort of maneuver. Because he was obsessed, like, am I hallucinating? Am I dreaming? Because it already happened twice already. <laughs> in other words, what? that previous conversation in which he'd revealed to me the secrets of Pristurdix, Inc., um, the company that seems to, that drugs everybody. And it's all through aerosols, by the way, through the air. Interesting. It's not for the water. It's not. It's not fluoride. It was only to draw me out. So it's like it's like in 1984, right? You know, but instead of uh, the rat in the cage, uh, my private fear of hallucination had you'd read as a tactical move, a gamut. Yes, it was indeed too late for explanations, particularly now that the cards were on the table. You were waiting for me here, I asked. Of course, with all your intuitive and enterprise, we were in full control throughout. No unmonitored rebellion can be permitted to threaten the status quo. The old man dying in the corridor, it dawned on me. He too had been part of the system of barriers that led me here. A nice status quo, I said. And you're in charge, I suppose? Congratulations. Save your sarcasm for a more suitable occasion, he hissed. I had succeeded in touching a sore point. He was annoyed. All this time, you've been looking for some diabolical plot. Well, let me tell you, my fine-feathered defrosty. Let me satisfy your curiosity here and now. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. Do you understand? 
We keep the civilization narcoticized, for otherwise it could not endure itself. That is why its sleep must not be disturbed, and that is why you will be returned to it. Oh, there's nothing to fear for you. This will only be not only be painless, but pleasurable. Our lot is far more difficult. We must remain awake to watch over you. A noble sacrifice, I said. For the common good, no doubt. If you value your almighty freedom of thought, he said coldly, then I would advise you to drop these snide remarks, for you'll only have to part with it so much sooner. Very well, then. You have something else to tell me? I'm listening. At this moment, I'm the only man in the whole state besides yourself who can see what I am wearing on my face, he suddenly asked as if to trap me. Sunglasses? Then you see as well as I, he said. The chemist who provided Tottenheller, his uh, friend of his, with the antidotes to the hallucinogenics, has returned to the bosom of society and no longer harbors the least suspicion. No one must suspect. Surely you can understand that. Wait a minute, I said. It really matters to you, doesn't it, that I be convinced? But, but why? Soothsayers aren't monsters, he answered. We are prisoners of the situation, backed into a corner, forced to play out the hand that history has dealt us. We bring peace and contentment in the only way remaining. We hold in precarious balance that which without us would plunge into the throes of universal agony. We are the last atlas of this world, and if we must persist, let us at least not suffer. If the truth cannot be altered, let us at least conceal it. This is the last humanitarian act, the last moral obligation. Protagonist says, Then nothing can be done? Nothing at all? I asked. The year is 2098, he said, with 29 billion inhabitants legally registered and approximately another 26 billion in hiding. The average annual temperature has fallen 4 degrees. In 15 or 20 years, there will be glaciers here. We have no way of averting or halting their advance. We can only keep them secret. I always thought there would be that would be ice and hell, I said. And so you paint the gates with pretty pictures? Exactly, he said. We are the last Samaritans. Someone had to speak to you from this place. It happens that I am that man. Yes, I see, I recall. Itch homo, I said. But wait, now that I see that what you're after, you want to make a believer of me. You want me to accept your role of this ecological antithesis. When there's no bread, let them eat opium. But I don't understand why you're so bent on my conversion, which in any event I'm to forget completely. If the methods you employ are good, then what's the point of all this reasoning and argument? A few drops of credi credibilium, a single squirt in the eye, and I applaud your every word with enthusiasm. You have my full approval, my esteem, if those methods are good. Yet apparently you yourself are not convinced of your worth, per preferring simple, old-fashioned hot air and rhetoric, wasting words on me instead of reaching for the atomizer. Apparently you're well aware that the triumph of Psychem is a sham, that you will be standing on the field alone, a conqueror with a bad case of heartburn. Yes, you wanted to win me over, and then cast me off into oblivion, but it won't work. I say to hang with your lofty mission, and those whores on the wall you soften the burden of your saviorhood. You like them the good old way, I take it, without the bristles. His face was twisted with rage. He jumped up, shouting, I have other drugs besides the heavenly del delights. There are also chemical infernos. I stood up, too. He was reaching for the button on his desk when I cried, We'll go together. And then they crash through like the window, and then in the falling he wakes up from that hallucination <laughs> and and kind of has a Wizard of Oz ending moment. Um, 
So what do you think of that, Michael? Does that does that uh, tie into everything we've been uh, we've been talking about? I think it's 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 pretty interesting. I gotta say. So you have these tech billionaires who are kind of like in the position of the the guy, you know, the overlord there. You know, it's like, look, uh, we can't stop climate change. It's only going to get worse. Uh, There's really nothing we can do except provide um, VR goggles to the masses. Uh, But not all of them. Player, the Ready Player One novel. Yeah. Where the best kind of future we can hope for is to have all this tech, but to not have it commodified. Right. So that's a that's a Stanislav Klem. So he's he's written a lot of stuff actually. It just so happened that was the book in the sci-fi section that I didn't recognize, you know, because I don't I don't need another Asimov book, you know. Right. I don't need more robots. Okay. I wanted a book about where the where the future is hallucinating <laughs> um, nice. and using drugs, jigs, um, drugs. But yeah, let's see if. Maybe I'll, I'll scoot ahead to the conclusion of the chapter here. We cannot escape the fact that dystopia is already here and that it has been here for a long time. The reactionary dystopian imagine, uh, imagination pretends uh, this is not the case by rectifying the, the present in a future totalitarianism. Fascism's just around the corner. We, we don't already live with it. While the progressive but realist dystopian uses the genre to consciously critique the current state of affairs in a hope of utopia. This is not the dominant trend of dystopian literature and thus does not feed into the dominant ideology of it. Even still, this progressive apprehension of dystopia presently cracks through the facade of the capitalist utopianism, which every riot with every riot and rebellion, despite the fact that those caught in the grip of imperialist ideology Contained in its thought. Okay, so this is all kind of overly wordy. But actually, another thing he mentions in an earlier paragraph is how, like, both, like, dystopia is also, it's, you could say in mainstream culture, Facebook controlling our social lives isn't dystopian, but people robbing a target and burning down the police station is. Like, the dystopia is in the breakdown of authority and civilization, by the un the poor the you know the the un uh, unemployed hordes, it's not when we the top twenty percent get VR goggles and and can experience a world where there's no exploitation or or at least um, it's they're distracted you know by by games I guess but um, but games are good and fun and I I, I play lots of games and so there, there'll be um, a companion piece to this that's also a bit lengthy. It's uh, the concept of uh, there's game denial, which is like the rejection of playing the game or th- engaging with the system, you know, like primitivists do. And then there's game acceptance, where it's like we can't change the way things are, so we might as well make the best of it for ourselves, not for the next generations, but, you know, whatever. It's up to, you know, they're on their own. Um, we need a third option like Zizek was pointing out, you know, we need a third option. The option is eco-socialism. We can call it different things, communalism, whatever, but it's left, it's left-wing politics. That's, that's the, what it comes down to to me. Any thoughts, Michael? No. Well, we've got to work hard to make the world that we want to live in. I had cut uh, the 
a VR story, and I made it that a clip, and I just finished uploading that to YouTube. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, so you're, you're doing that cutting in real time. Cool. So let me um, do the sign-off, I guess. Just um, All right. for you. Um, All right. Yeah. Have a good one. All right. Keep in touch. We'll, we'll be streaming again um, probably during yeah. the week, uh, at least for an hour or so. All right. And, and, and then uh, I also stream, I plan to stream sometime during the week at uh, 3 Left Show. His channel is Homegrown Hangout, <laughs> where we also do kind of weekly chat. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics you'd like to hear discussed. Uh, send us a line, any kind of communique. You can do it via social media, on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, we're also, there's a Patreon page. I have also created a page on LibraPay, which is the nonprofit Patreon. Of course, like Monopoly's work, you know, there can be these alternatives, but they're never going to have the saturation to matter. But still, you can pay me on LibraPay, and then Patreon doesn't take so many fees from it. Um, there is also... So you can also support us materially, as well as the station, and we do need it. Um, become a member at uh, grandarts.org. We can also listen to the live stream of this show. There is the last 10 episodes are put on all podcasting apps. Sometimes there's a little hiccup or two, like on uh, Spotify, but we're on Spotify, iTunes, and all the podcasting apps uh, that you can think of. If you have one and we're not there, please contact and tell me so I can get in that streaming, get that stream in. Uh, there is also, yeah, I mentioned the Twitch, um, which is a streaming site, which um, I'm not putting all the content up there. Uh, eventually, though, um, through Homegrown, you know, that content, like you said, he is uploading those to YouTube, and that's his YouTube channel. So it's like the Three Left Show. You want to search for Homegrown Hangout or Homegrown Syndicalist Socialist. That is where you can find this content, this show, in YouTube form. Isn't that great? Um, we are diversified. 